Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, want to begin by taking just a minute to brag on my boys. We're on day four or five. It seems like weeks, but it's been days without Terry. She is in Dallas uh, taking care of her mom who is having surgery. So you can pray for both Terry and her mom as she's there. We've got another week ahead of us, and uh, we've never done this before. I'm not convinced it's possible. But honestly, Graham and Grant both have been troopers. They have been a big help, and I just wanted to thank them for the job that they're doing. It's uh, kind of fun to come together and, as the men of the house and make things work. So it's not very pretty, but we make things work. Um, I do want to encourage you to come tonight. We don't do too many things during the year uh, where we get everybody together for fellowship and time with one another, but this is one of those times where we set aside to, to be with each other. It usually involves food, and, and that's good, um, but this is one of those times that I would encourage you to come. I'm going to say this with a disclaimer that I'm not sure I can pull it off, but my parents, who are also out of town, which makes this even more difficult with me and the boys, I'm not bitter about that, but anyway... Um, they have two peach trees in the backyard that are just putting out peaches like crazy. And uh, I'm going to try to make a peach cobbler for tonight. But if all else fails, I'll at least bring some peaches. (laughs) Okay? Not sure which one it'll be, but one of the two. Well, this last week we celebrated what was known as Juneteenth. How many of y'all know what Juneteenth celebrates, recognizes? Okay? For those of you who raise your hand, good job. Because uh, it really is an important event in our American history. Uh, it's actually one of the things that celebrates uh, the, what was considered the last day of slavery in America. Because you may probably remember that Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation into law on January 1st, 1863. But for the next two and a half years... Most of America, or many of the places in America, carried on as normal, and slavery still existed. Only when the Union Army just slowly and gradually made its way through the United States into some of the most stubborn states, Texas being one of them, by the way, was it finally uh, carried out on June 19th, 1865, actually in Galveston, Texas when it was finally determined that slavery in the United States had been eliminated. It it was the day that was recognized as the last day of slavery in America. It's interesting to me as I think about that, 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 that freedom was actually proclaimed, but rarely experienced through most of America for an extended period of time. The reality that freedom existed, but yet was not experienced is interesting to me, and it draws my attention to what I think exists in the lives of many Christians today. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims freedom. In fact, uh, Paul writes to the Galatians, listen to what he says. He says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom has been proclaimed. Yet, for many, it is rarely experienced. As we'll see this morning, our great emancipator spoke to audiences of people whose lives have been been trained to live within certain barriers, according to certain laws and specific religious restrictions. And despite the fact that Jesus has come to proclaim 
freedom, many still chose to live in slavery. And unfortunately, that reality continues to this day. And for that reason, what we will hear this morning is a message that we cannot afford to miss. Jesus says, I am the door, giving you access to a new way of life, through a new freedom that comes through Christ alone. It was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom has been proclaimed. And Jesus wants it to be your experience as well. Keep that in mind as we look at our passage this morning. But before we do, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we come to you, we want to hear this message clearly. A message of freedom, a message of, of liberty in Christ. It's one that, that we see abuses on either side of in our world today. And, and yet we understand that you gave us a perspective of what it looks like as you intended And we see a picture of that this morning in the passage that we'll look at. So would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can live in the promise that you gave us when you spoke to the people and speak to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we've looked at the I am statements of Jesus thus far, I I hope that you have appreciated the importance of the context and understanding the significance of what Jesus has to say about himself. Clearly, Jesus is using known situations and, and traditions so that the hearer can understand the importance of who he is. For example, it was during Passover, right? The the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After having miraculously multiplied five loaves of bread and two fish to feed 5,000 people, that Jesus stood before them and says, I am the bread of life. Just as God provided manna from heaven, I come from heaven as your daily provision, and you can depend on me. It was during the Festival of Lights, that Feast of tabernacles, standing next to those huge candelabras, you remember, in the temple courts, that Jesus stood before the people and he said to them, I am the light of the world. Like that pillar of fire in the wilderness, Jesus came to reveal the way of salvation for those who are willing to follow him. And that trend of context continues into our passage this morning. It's a little more difficult to understand, takes some development, but it's important to us see because otherwise the statement that he makes, we miss. And so I want us to understand that context in which Jesus speaks so that you can appreciate the significance of what he says about himself. If you would, go ahead and turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. As you're turning there, one of the things that I want you to know about the context that, that, is, is, uh, that is evident as you read our passage is that, number one, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He's still in Jerusalem. And on this particular day, it happens to be the Sabbath. So it's a Sabbath day in Jerusalem. Jesus is walking the streets, and he encounters a man who is blind, begging for money, most likely. And this scene creates a a, a situation where the disciples turn to Jesus and they ask him an interesting question about this man who is blind. Look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And he passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. And as long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There in the beginning, the disciples asked that interesting question about the cause of this man's blindness. And and their question expresses a common understanding of why people were born with disabilities during that time. And there were really just a couple of options. One explanation was thought to have been explained in the book of Exodus, where it says that God visits the sins of the fathers upon the children and the children's children upon the third and fourth generation. So the blindness in the eyes of the disciples could have been due to the sin of the parents. But there was also another option taught by the Pharisees that suggested that even a baby in the womb had the capacity to choose between good and evil. And therefore, when a child was born with a disability, it was evidence that they chose to live in sin. And that defect, in this case, blindness was due to a punishment for their willful decision, for the willful decision of a fetus. So in the minds of the disciples, and according to the understanding of the day, these were the only two options. So that's why they asked Jesus the question, as they did. Jesus then hears that question and says, actually, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents. But it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And as the light of the world, he will now reveal that God intended purpose. Look at what he says in verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay out of spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came away. And came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, those who previously saw him as a beggar, were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but it is like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. Therefore, they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay. And anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. He doesn't know because he couldn't see. Jesus put mud on his eyes and sent him away. He never saw the man who healed him. One of the interesting things is that aspect about this miracle where Jesus put mud on his eyes and then sent him to a place to wash them. And I want you to know that there were plenty of places that this man could have washed his eyes. This particular place was not the one that was most convenient. Now, the reason I believe that's the case is that at this location, the Pool of Siloam, there was a ritual that took place called the outpouring of water. In this ritual, the the priest came down from the temple with large jugs to the pool of Siloam where they filled those jugs up with water and then in a procession marched back to the temple to pour that water into the lava. How many of y'all went to the little tabernacle display that was 
this in the spring, I think, over at the Alders Gate. You may remember you had the big altar of fire, which we couldn't burn because of the burn ban, right? But then behind that, before you walked into the tent, was that big bowl of water. Well, that's what they gathered that water for, was for that ritual of washing. And this particular event created quite a scene. A lot of people gathered to watch this procession as the priest came down, gathered this water, marched back up to the temple. And I believe it's for that reason that Jesus sent this man to that place so that it would garner the most attention as being a very significant sign. The point is that that there were lots of people, and Jesus wanted them to see what he was about to do. So the man does is was instructed. He goes to the pool of Siloam. He washes his eyes, and for the very first time in his life, he could see. The man had been born blind. And so everyone looks at what is happening and said, Hey, isn't this the guy who was at the temple gate? No, that, that can't be him. He, he was born blind, and, and so he doesn't have a chance. I bet it's someone else, but it sure looks like him. But as it turns out, it was the man who was born blind. And now he can see. And that is simply unexplainable. And here's why. See, if you look at Scripture, this was not the first, man, the first blind man that Jesus healed. In fact, there have been other miracles that have been pretty impressive, like the healing of the paralytic, the leper's hand. He even healed a woman whose son had died. Right? So this was something significant. It stood out the, that if you look at the rest of chapter 9, there is an unprecedented interrogation that happens to go on by the religious leaders specific to this miracle. They question him. Then they go to the parents and question them. Then they come back to the same man. They question him again. This is of great significance. And here's why. The reason this is drawing such attention is because according to the rabbis, the healing of a man born blind could only be performed by one person, the Messiah. This is a messianic miracle. That's why the other miracles were not given this same attention. Because those things may have been done before, but not this one. And so because of the implication, the Pharisees press for more details. The Scripture tells us that they go on to ask this man, they approach him and say, tell us exactly what happened here. Well, the man once blind explains to them, a man named Jesus, never saw him, knew his name, took clay, put it on my eyes, told me to go to the pool of Siloam, wash, and when I did as he instructed me, I could see. And so when the Pharisees heard this, if you look at that passage, it tells us that they begin to, to think. The wheels start turning. And some of them said, listen, guys, we all know that it's a Sabbath. And so this is a violation of the law. This can't be a messianic miracle because the act itself is a sin. And still others might have agreed, but they said, okay, that may be true. But how can a sinner perform a sign reserved for the Messiah? So they turned again to the man once born blind and said, who do you think Jesus is? He tells them, he says, well, I don't know, but, but maybe he's a prophet. Well, we all know what the religious leaders thought of Jesus. So to elevate him to the level of prophet was not something that would be acceptable in their eyes. 
And so in order to discredit the significance of this miracle and its obvious implications, they simply conclude that, okay, this man may have been blind, but he sure wasn't born that way. And so now they seek to question the parents in order to confirm their conclusion. But what I want you to understand as we look at this next part of the passage is that they had their answer. (laughs) They weren't going to find out truth. They were going to confirm what they were going to make truth so that they could put this thing behind them and move on. Look at what it says in verse 18. It said, The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him, speaking of the explanation of the blind man, that he had been blind from birth in particular and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind, then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, this is really important. I don't want you to miss this because the growing animosity between the religious leaders and Jesus made it, a, made it a, a situation where the religious leaders had determined that anyone who recognized Jesus as the Messiah would be put out or more specifically excommunicated from the synagogue. Now, That may not sound like a big deal to you and I, but let me just explain to you that this is more than just a slap on the hand. In fact, this was actually the highest level of punishment for the Jewish people, separating individuals from the Jewish community altogether. The Jews considered people who received this discipline to be dead. They did not exist They had no part among the community of God's chosen people. They were an anathema, cursed by God himself. And so that's why the parents answered the question the way they did. They knew the implications of recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. So all they said was, we know this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but how he can now see, we have no explanation. So the religious leaders Now I've hit a dead end. And you can, as you read this passage, just really feel the the tension that is building up as they are trying to get around this issue of this messianic miracle. And so this time they go back to the man who was born blind, and now they press him for more details. And if you listen to what they have to say, you can see that they're using the the power of manipulation and, and fear tactics to get the answer that they have to hear to move on from this issue. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, listen to what they say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. (laughs) Is that a loaded statement or what? If you love God, you will agree that this man is a sinner. What we all know to be true. And so you wouldn't dare go against what we as the religious leaders believe to be the truth, would you? But the man once born blind doesn't crater. 
His answer is simple. Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But what I do know is that I was once blind, but now I see. He then goes on to say, I already told you what happened, but clearly that's not what you want to hear. Well, as you might expect, (laughs) the Pharisees took offense to this response for the man who was born blind. And so they pulled out their holier-than-thou stamp of approval and said, listen here, you little beggar. The life you live is because you were born in sin. The implication here is, not only is Jesus a sinner, so are you. They go on to say, we were not the ones who were born blind. We don't have that same problem. So won't you just basically wake up and start listening to the ones who have no sin because they are the ones you need to follow. God has spoken to Moses, they say. Moses has spoken to us. Therefore, if you want to follow God, you start following us. Until then, the Pharisees say to this man, consider yourself excommunicated. Look at verse 34. It says there, they put him out. That's exactly what that means. This blind man, this man once blind, now can see he has been excommunicated from the synagogue. Considered dead, separate, and apart from the Jewish community. Now, having heard this, the the text tells us that Jesus seeks him out. He seeks him out specifically because he hears that the man had been put out of the synagogue. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, And who is he, Lord? that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Remember, like I said, the man had never seen Jesus before this moment. But once he realizes that this is the one who had done for him something that had never been done before, he knew it was the Messiah. He believed in him and he worshiped him. He was once blind, but now he could see both physically and now spiritually as well. I know this is kind of a long explanation, but but this is the setting in which Jesus will now make the I am statement that otherwise seems to stand out disconnected. But once you appreciate the context from which he is speaking, it makes sense. Turn, if you will, to, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And following these events, this is what Jesus says, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who enter, who, excuse me, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice and a stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers this first illustration that jesus used describes a sheepfold which is basically a large pen which includes many flocks of sheep by for hold being held for several different shepherds it's kind of like a holding pen 
These pens typically were made out of stone walls, usually eight or nine feet tall, and they had one gate that served as both an an entrance and an exit into that space. A legitimate shepherd would go to the gatekeeper, the one standing guard over that sheepfold. He would be recognized. He would go in, and as he would start speaking or singing, the sheep would hear his voice, and they would start following him. Okay, now, when I tell you that, I want you to understand I'm not making this up. In fact, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, and I've heard first-hand accounts of this to be true, and if you've been to Jerusalem, you may have seen this to, to actually happen. But even today, you'll see shepherds leading their flocks through the city of Jerusalem. Now, in modern times, there are cars zipping by. There are people on the sidewalks. There's all kinds of hustle and bustle. But what you'll notice is that the shepherd will be singing, and the sheep will follow him faithfully without paying any attention to anything else going on. It happens to this day. That's the way it's supposed to work. The sheep follow the voice of their shepherd. But these false shepherds, Jesus says, they choose a different way. Instead of going through the gate, Jesus says that they actually jump over the wall. The surprise that this creates for the animal causes all kinds of of fear and confusion. And so instead of being gathered together, they scatter in a hundred different directions. See, that's just what happened with the man born blind. The Pharisees are the false prophets. They consider themselves to be the ones who are on the inside. But what Jesus is telling the people is the only reason they're on the inside is because they've climbed over the wall. They're false shepherds. Their presence, as we can tell from our, 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 our passages, has created all kinds of fear and confusion. Instead of gathering the sheep together, they very literally have cast them out. Now, as we listen to this illustration within the context of what is happening, we know the big picture is so much easier for us to see, but the people that Jesus was speaking to were were having trouble grasping what he wanted them to hear, and so he chooses a different angle. Look at what he says in verse 6. It says, This figure of speech, the one he just used, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Jesus therefore said to them, just clearly as can be, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. I am the door. Jesus says, I have the exclusive right to grant you entry into God's kingdom. Salvation, freedom, and the abundant life are found only in me. The thief who climbs over the wall will restrict your life and lead you to destruction. They cast out instead of gathering together. These are false prophets. They rob you of the freedom that can only be found in Christ alone. Now, I don't want us to lose the significance of of this statement that Jesus makes and the promise that follows it. So let's look at it closely. The first thing he says is, I am the door. Anyone who enters through me, he will be saved. And so what that tells us is that there are not multiple roads that lead to God. 
Now, granted, there are multiple roads. <laughs> the world is filled with all kinds of, of religious beliefs, as was the case during the time of Christ as well. And, and each one of those roads has a way of salvation, a means by which they suggest that you can find peace with God. And some might suggest that all those roads eventually lead to heaven. But Jesus did not come onto the scene and say, you know, you have a lot of good options out there for salvation, and I just want you to know that, that I hope you choose me. That's not what he said. No, Jesus makes it quite clear. He is the only door by which we gain access into an eternal relationship with God. That message is affirmed in the book of Acts when Peter would say, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. And so be careful. Because still today there are those who climb over the walls, creating all kinds of of fear and, and confusion. We live in a liberal society where everyone is encouraged to do what is right in their own eyes. Truth is relative and there are multiple doors. Just pick the one you like the most. Still others will pin you in with the fence of, of do's and, and don'ts instead of inviting you into the freedom of Jesus Christ's cans and shoulds. Like the Pharisees, they may honor God with their lips, but they bring division. By burdening our lives with conditions, stipulations, requirements, and regulations that are necessary for you to be saved. But Jesus was clear. I am the door. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. But he doesn't just stop there. That's just the beginning. He goes on to say, those who enter through me shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, that sounds like a simple statement, but I don't want you to miss this one because I think it's a, a proclamation of freedom. You see, when the thieves and robbers climb over the fence, their primary objective is to keep you contained. Your movement is restricted as you live within the barrier of their control. Now, they promise to keep you safe, but only if you live according to their list of laws and rules and religious regulations. But Jesus says, when I'm the door, you're free to go in, you're free to go out. You can live in the safety of the sheepfold, or you can walk out into the green pasture. And notice that either one is okay. You can go in, or you can go out. You can rest in the sheepfold or you can feed in the pasture. It's a message of freedom. And that's the point. You are equally protected within the the care of God in either place. Oh, but aren't there there wild, wild animals out in the pasture? Some might ask. Yes, there are. In fact, the world is filled with evil influences and bad people. But the walls that we build up to protect ourselves and our families from the outside world only give us a false sense of security. Because the walls are not what protect you. The good shepherd 
is what protects you. The walls are not what protects you. The good shepherd is what protects you. You and I have been given the freedom to live within the vast expanse of God's loving care. And we miss out on so many things when we choose to build these self-imposed barriers of fear in our lives. The fear of man's approval is what takes away our freedom to try and sometimes fail. The fear of financial security is what inhibits our ability to give freely and openly to those in need. The fear of getting hurt is what prevents us from taking the risks that are necessary to love. The fear of danger is the barrier that prevents us from taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. These fears are like thieves that rob us of the freedom given to us in Christ. (laughs) Yeah, but you know there are no fences out there in the pasture, right? (laughs) You understand that. People could take advantage of that freedom, wander off and and get lost. And that's true. And if there were a hundred sheep in the pasture and one of them is lost, the good shepherd will leave the 99 in the open pasture. He will go out and look for the one that is lost until... He is found. Freedom is risky. I'll grant you that. That's why Paul says, For we are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What Paul is saying here is that love is what governs our freedom in Christ. In other words, we don't need to put up a fence of do's and don'ts when our freedom is constrained by love. We don't wander off anywhere our selfish desires want to go whenever our freedom is constrained by love. There's a lot of room to roam when our decisions are based on a self-sacrificing love for one another and when what we do is motivated by a loving desire to glorify God. There's a lot of room to roam. And since love This is what keeps us from being careless. We should experience the fullness of God and the abundant life that he promised. For example, there's no relationship, in my opinion, this side of heaven, that is more meaningful than the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage as God designed it to be. And whether it's in the context of marriage or not, there is no love more rewarding than one that follows the example of Christ and considers the needs of others as more important than their own. Because I don't know about you, but when I live for myself, I end up feeling empty every single time. But when I uh, live to to serve the needs of others as more important than than my own, it always makes me full. And yet, I know that I only have something to give when I am being filled up in Christ. He is the source of anything that is good in my life, and I only have something of worth to offer when it originates in Him. That's what it means to, to live the abundant life. Never being able to exhaust the depths of God's goodness. And let me just say here that this doesn't mean that the abundant life is, is free of pain. Because we all know, we've lived life long enough to know that there's plenty of of suffering this side of heaven, isn't there? And so God's goodness does not imply an absence of pain. But when you live the abundant life, here's the difference. Listen, that pain 
is not wasted. The scripture tells us that, that God works all things for, for the good of those who love him. We just studied the life of Joseph. And we saw that he actually used the evil, evil motives of someone else to, to accomplish a greater good. The abundant life does not mean there is an absence of pain. But it does mean there is no pain that is absent of purpose. There is no pain that is absent of purpose. In this world, there are thieves who seek to kill and steal and destroy. Where your loss is their gain. But Jesus has come that you might be saved. We have been given life through faith in what he accomplished in his death. He is the door. And and only through Christ do we experience salvation, freedom, and the abundant life to the praise and glory of his grace. Amen? It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Only do not let your freedom turn into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's pray together and then I have a quick announcement to make. Father, as we come to you, we do just thank you for the freedom that we have in you. Uh, what a blessing it is to recognize that, that uh, you have come to give us salvation freedom, and the abundant life. There's so much room to roam under the loving protection of your care, constrained by the loving desire to serve others and to to glorify you. Father, I pray that we would be uninhibited in proclaiming this good news of freedom to the uttermost parts of the world, which may begin with our next-door neighbor or the person in the cubicle right next to us at work or the friend that we go to school with. We have a message, and yet there are so many who remain in slavery. The proclamation has been made. May we carry it forth from this place. We pray this in your name. Amen.